Welcome to A Conversation with Brian. Tonight's guest, Sarah Kugler, the author of Better Book Clubs, Deepening Comprehension and Elevating Conversation. Sarah is a literacy coach and consultant based in Northern Virginia. She was previously a staff developer for the Teachers College Reading and Writing Project, as well as a classroom teacher in Brooklyn, New York. Sarah currently designs elementary literacy curriculum and professional learning opportunities for Woodburn Elementary School in Fairfax County, Virginia. And so without further ado, let's welcome to a conversation with Brian, Sarah Kugler. Sarah, welcome to the show. Thanks. I'm so glad to talk with you. I am so excited that you're here. And, you know, one of the things that I, I want to have you do before we start, Sarah, is really to, to talk to my audience about Sarah Kugler's personal story, professional journey, um, as much as you'd like to share. So who is Sarah Kugler? <laughs> I think I always think of myself as a classroom teacher. Um, I definitely, when I design PD or when I write, I'm still in that classroom teacher mindset. But um, I obviously started out, I have a bunch of years as a classroom teacher. Um, I taught K through three in Fairfax County. And most of that time was in Brooklyn public schools, in New York City public schools in Brooklyn. And I was one of those teachers that was asking every year to switch grade levels because I always felt like I had more questions that I was trying to figure out. So um, I know some people really love to change every year. That is definitely me. Every year I would yeah. go to my principal and just say, I, I think I want to switch. I want to go to upper grades or I want to try kindergarten or whatever it was. I want to loop with my kids. Um, and then I worked at Teachers College Reading and writing project um, for a few years, mostly in upper grades, third through eighth grade is where I was really, you know, doing sure. in classrooms. And that job really had me going all over the country and a little bit of the world to get into classrooms. I mean, we were in classrooms every single day in third, fourth, fifth grade classrooms, yeah. um, trying stuff out. And then I landed back where I started in Fairfax County Public Schools. Um, writing curriculum and leading professional development. And I'm back in a single school now as a literacy coach, which is my favorite job I've ever had. Yeah. Um, Cause it gives me all of the opportunity for all my favorite things, sure. trying it out in classrooms, working with teachers, working alongside them, figuring some stuff out. Did you always want to be a teacher? Always. I'm one of those people who came from, I'm like a I have a teaching family. My dad was a teacher. In the genes, huh? <laughs> it, it felt like growing up, like I could speak about the different movements in reading instruction in college, which like, just because I was around it, you know, um, hearing my dad talk about it growing yeah. up. So yeah, well, always. For my audience members, um, in the effort of full disclosure, Sarah is one of my former parents. Um, mm -hmm. uh, her daughter, Maxine, was at Mason Crest, I think my last year. She was in kind kindergarten, I think it was. Yes. Um, and I think she had, I can't remember who she had in, in kindergarten. Abby Buckham. Abby Buckham, in yes. this day, yes. I, I would Abby. build a statue in our She's front amazing. yard that yeah. if I could. Yeah, well, we had a lot of amazing people at Mason Crest. But yeah, Abby was, was certainly um, a, a shining star. Uh, and your other child, Elias, Elias. at uh, Mason Crest as well. And so good for you. 
Um, when I was reading your book, and congratulations on, on your book, it's a wonderful book. Um, it's called Better Book Clubs, everybody, and go out and get it. It was published by Stenhouse. Um, and when I was reading your book, I, I really was just heartened in the way that, and, and for me, it just seemed so inclusive of all kids, all students. And to, to be able to, to pull this off, you it's very difficult to pull this off if you don't have the mindset that every single kid can learn and every kid, single kid has a strength, a gift. And you talk about, you know, identifying strengths in here. And so the first thing I wanted to ask you about is, one, why did you write the book? And you, what we're going to do is we're going to actually kind of go chapter by chapter and kind of just walk through the book. But why why did you write the book Better Book Clubs? Um, because there are a lot of books out there. But you know what what was your thinking behind this book? I think there were two things that were really on my mind. One is that I felt like you know I was kind of like um, brought up on guided reading. That was really <laughs> my teacher training. That was right. most of the professional development that I got. And I was working in. Um, a public school in Brooklyn that had a lot of kids that were reading on and above grade level, you know, right. kids that were just reading like 17 book series and sure. those fantasy series. And I just thought there's got to be more out there for them other than me picking a book, me handing them a book, um, them reading these kind of like 28 page short books. Right. And I started just experimenting with book clubs. I've always been part of a book club as yeah. an adult. You know, I have my friends who I we read a book a month. And I just started thinking about um, what are some other forms of small group work that will help kids extend their understanding. So that was one thing that really got me started about this book. Right. And then the other thing I feel like that's a just a core belief of mine is that whatever we teach in schools, it's got to have legs outside of school. It's yeah. got to be authentic. And so that was the thing that really inspired a lot of this book is I'm, I'm always checking my practice by asking myself, is this generative, what I'm teaching kids? Will it have legs outside of my classroom? Will it have legs outside of my reading block? Will it have legs outside of this school? Um, and so that's really at the heart of why I wanted to write this book. Yeah, I, I can hear the passion in your voice <laughs> and I can see it in your face. Um, let's actually just start from the beginning uh, and just kind of walk through it because I want the audience to kind of get a picture of what this would look like in schools. Because I think sometimes people say, well, it sounds good, but I can't do this in, in, in quote, my class or in our school because we have these kind of kids. And I want to make sure that people are clear that there are no those kind of kids. Everybody should be able to be, be able to have access to yes. this, right? And so in your introduction, you talk about the purpose and power of book clubs and authentic book club experiences and the benefits of book clubs. So what is an authentic book club experience? Yeah. So one thing I always, I'm always picturing that question that I said to you about like, does it have legs? So yeah. I really start with the vision of like, what does it look like when a group of adults sit around and discuss a text. I know what it looks like with my own personal book club. Yeah. I also know what it looks like in 
um, PhD programs around the country when a professor assigns a text and students have to come ready and prepared to discuss and debate ideas with that text. So I wanted to take that vision, that's our long-term vision of where we want kids to go, and dial it back so that we're creating some, some version of that in our classrooms. So a lot of the things remain the same. Kids read uh, the same text at mm -hmm. about the same pace. Yeah. Um, they need to learn how to initiate the conversation. It's not yeah. always led by the teacher, just like it's not going to be always led by a professor. Sure. They need to learn how to sustain that conversation. Those are all things that are true about book clubs or movie clubs or recipe clubs out in the real world. So yeah. those are the qualities that we're trying to replicate in school. And just to go back to your initial comment about like, is it for all kids? I think <laughs> one of the things I always come back to is like when I was, when I had, my kids were younger, when they were, you know, 18 months and four years old and we would sit around the dinner table and you know, my husband and I would be talking about whatever issues were around during the day. And our four-year-old would participate in any way she could. Our 18-month-old would participate in any way they could, right? They would ask a question or they would interject or they would say something that connected that connected to them. Yeah. And I think it's always interesting that like as parents, we don't say, my kid's not ready to have a conversation with me. Exactly. We understand that like we meet them wherever they are. And we grow from there and that we bring that philosophy into book clubs at school that like there's no such thing as a kid who's not ready. Yeah. We meet them where they are. Well, I think the the, the important thing is helping pe people understand this is about comprehension, it's about conversation, you know, it's about language development. And so yes. who, who cannot and who doesn't deserve to take part in that? Exactly. And that's how kids learn language outside of school is by yeah. engaging with an adult who's willing to talk with them about whatever they want to talk about. Right. Yeah. So, Sarah, let's get into some of the nitty gritty. In chapter um, one, you talk about grounding book clubs in the predictability of workshop. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you, you kind of talk about the difference between the traditional workshop um, <laughs> and versus the workshop and book clubs. Can you kind of walk us through what a workshop is and what that looks like? Because I have to be honest, you know, traveling around the country and doing consulting work myself, there are a number of schools, a number of teachers who work in isolation who don't, you know, have a workshop model or, you know, stations or rotations, whatever you want to call it, but they don't have that workshop model. And so they're like trying to kind of figure this out by themselves. And, and they're like, how can I target needs when I'm teaching all these kids the same thing at the same time. And, and that's not what we're talking about. I think that's that's exactly it is the workshop it has always been designed, whether we want to talk about a reading workshop or when we talk about a pottery workshop, whatever kind of workshop, it's always been just a structure so that different groups of people can engage in the work in different ways. That's always what a workshop's been. So there's different structures for a workshop. My workshop that I usually set up starts with a very brief whole group lesson. And the reason it's really brief is because I know that not all the kids need the exact same thing. And so what I really want to do is I want to get to the differentiated instruction. So I keep my whole group lesson brief. And then I send the kids off to engage in some meaningful work. Um, if I can stop you, that whole group le lesson is an anchor because it's an anchor on a certain skill, right? And so you want to make sure that all kids, no matter 
where they are in the continuum, they have access to that skill. Absolutely. And I think that's really important too, because A, that whole group lesson, like I love how you call it an anchor because it becomes this like reference point that you can keep going back to in your small groups, right? Um, And it creates this kind of shared understanding, shared language. Sometimes that whole group lesson is I'm engaging, I'm reading a text together. That serves as our anchor text then moving forward. You're right. Um, And then the important part is that we get kids up and out around the classroom engaging in some meaningful work. And that might look like centers. Mm -hmm. Um, It might look like kids doing some independent reading, whatever the, as authentic as you can get it, I tend to just send kids off to do some independent reading. Some of what they're reading are books of their choice. And once I get book clubs up and running, some of what they're reading is the book club book that they have selected. How do you... Uh, and, and you kind of alluded to it, you, well, you said it in terms of the, the selection of, of books, but how do you ensure that um, kids are able to be with other other kids and not the same kids the entire time every for every single book club? Like some kid may say, well, I want to be with them, but they might not be at the same reading level or um, there may be other circumstances. But how do you make sure that you're really um, having kids um, be heterogeneously grouped for these clubs. Yeah. There's a lot of different ways to do it. And I think that was one of the things that in writing the book, I was really trying not to be lockstep. Like if you want to do book clubs, here's how it has to be. I tried to provide, especially in those early chapters, a lot of options. So one option, if you're a school that assesses by reading level, let's say one option, like you alluded to, is to group students who are in a similar reading level. Um, that ensures that kids will be able to access and understand the text, but it's not the only way to do it. I was working with this incredible teacher, Phoebe Markle, who had a lot of kids who were reading, you know, on and above grade level. And she created choice book clubs where she said, what are some of the things that you're interested in? And she had a group of kids reading. I survived because they were obsessed with that series. And she had a group of kids who decided they just wanted to read sports biographies. And then she had a group of kids who were obsessed with a fantasy series. And so they just like launched into this seven book fantasy series. So it can move all the way from teacher determining book clubs. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't even have to stay that way all year. By the end of the year, you could move into more choice book clubs. There's a lot of different ways to group kids. And in terms of the actual structure of the book club and, and how it runs and how we prevent from one kid dominating or the teacher always leading or it just being silent. Um, yeah. how, how do you model that structure in order for it to be it for it to be productive? Yeah. I think the most important thing, because that question is, I would say the number one question I get when I lead workshops on book clubs is like, there's this kid, one kid who never stops talking. There's this one kid who cannot get in to the book club for the life of them. Those to me are, I just call them predictable problems. Like I know every year I am going to have a club that just sits there and stares at each other for four minutes straight because nobody will start the conversation. I know I'm going to have a kid who steamrolls everybody. I know I'm going to have a kid. And those are just things that I have to let happen in order to teach into those problems. Yeah. So just one example. It's predictable. It's preventable. And so you you, you let it happen, but you know what you're going to do. You know what your response is going to be. 
That's right. I don't want to prevent it because then I'm doing teaching that they don't even need. I I need to let four kids stare at each other for an entire book club meeting so that I can pull my chair up next to them and say, hey, y'all, I noticed something, which is that you had a hard time getting this conversation rolling. I thought I could teach some tips and tricks for how to launch a conversation, right? I need it to happen. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and, and I think that's kind of like that, um, opportunity for kids to feel that uncomfortableness. Yes. And then they realize, oh, we have to do something different. We might need some guidance or we might need some support. Yes. I, and I think about that a lot that, shifting our mindset from like seeing it as when kids struggle with something like that, I think we can think to ourselves, oh, they're not ready yet. Right. Or we can see those problems and we can think to ourselves, oh, they're ready for some teaching. Yeah. Right. So just knowing those problems will happen and being ready to respond rather than abandon the opportunities. I think one of the things that I have, you know, really tried to you know talk to people about this is this idea about not putting the onus on the kids in terms of blaming them and 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 taking them out of struggle but putting the tools in our toolkit the teachers mm-hmm. toolkit. because a lot of times we say they're not ready or they they can't do this and that's not the case the case is we don't have the skills yet or we don't have the tools or the experience mm-hmm. to do this and so we opt out and so yes. how to make sure that we are using our colleagues. I know in the book you talked about Mason Crest and the collaborative approach, collaborative approach. And I think it's really important because no teacher has all the knowledge, skills, and experience to to know everything. And so building on each other's, you know, strengths and ideas is really important as a as a team. Yeah. There it reminds me of one of my favorite Mari Clay quotes. She says, A stuck child is a stuck teacher. Mm-hmm. And like I think that's I think about that if a kid is stuck, it's probably just because I don't have the tools yet to know how to move them along. One of the things that we've been, I know they do at Mason Crest and I know that we've been trying here, my current school at Woodburn right now is during collaborative team meetings, and we'll get to this a little bit later, is we've been analyzing data together at grade level teams um, because sometimes it's hard to even see what a kid is doing because of your previous beliefs about them. Yeah right? For better or for worse. And so having, if you're like, oh, this kid's really stuck and your colleague goes, look at this brilliant thing he just said at the bottom of this transcript, it can completely shift how you approach that kid, right? That's why, you know, I have a book in my, in my background, it's called The Brilliance in the Building. Mm. And it's because of what you're just saying. It's like, we have so much knowledge in our schools, Mm -hmm. all the expertise, the experience, um, the skills, and if we can put those together and share, there's nothing that we cannot do for, for students. That's your thing, right? The answer's in the room. Your teachers talk about you saying that all the time. The answer's in the room or the room is the answer. We, mm. we Even if it's not in the room, then the room should say, okay, who can we, who can we ask? You know, what, what, mm. what school or, or what team is, is, is doing something that maybe can put some tools in our toolkit? So yeah, of course. Um, in one of your chapters, you talk about this idea of scaffolding, and I think that's that's so important. My 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 passion to my core is access creates equity. We should not limit access for any kid. And so, how do we 
scaffold, and I want you to talk about scaffolding for students who might not, if we didn't give them the proper support, be able to access some of the things that we're offering every kid. Totally. And man, that just makes me think of that back to that quote of like, or that idea of who's ready for it and who's not ready, who gets access are tends to be kids who have already been granted access at their homes in other grade levels who have been deemed like worthy enough to participate in book clubs. And so like, let's just take that idea off the table and say that like every kid can and deserves to have rich discussions about texts, period, whether you want to call them book clubs or not. But that requires teachers to give them actual time, opportunities to do it, and then provide the scaffolding so that they continue to feel success. So I think about scaffolding in a couple of ways. One thing I think about it is in terms of how I'm responding with my own teaching. So I might name something brilliant a kid just did. This just happened. Um, I was just in a classroom right before this interview where um, a child who almost never talks in the middle of a book club said, what word did you just use? Invaluable? What did, What does that mean? Oh, wow. And I just named for the kid, Giovanni, you were listening so closely that you noticed a word you didn't understand and you asked him to explain it to you. That's what a good book club member does. So cool. That's a really light scaffold to just notice and name for a kid something they're doing well. well think about that skill that you just named, that listening comprehension. Yes. Right? That's huge. Yes. It's huge. And, and I'm noticing not enough kids are listening to each other. They're so used to listening to the teacher. It's a skill. It's a whole different skill to know how to listen to your peer. I, I do. For Sarah... That should be something that that conversation you just had with that student should have been videotaped. Not that you wouldn't, <laughs> because many teachers or some teachers may not know that that was an opportunity. That was an assessment. That was an opportunity yes. to point out something that actually he did right and, and to model what you're what you want from him. That's exactly it. The beauty of book clubs to me is that the assessment is built in. The minute kids start talking, they're giving you data, right? It's like that that idea of street data. I'm kind of obsessed with that idea right now. This beautiful book that just came out um, last year that like if a kid is talking, if they're in conversation, they are giving you data that you can respond to, right? Yeah. So that's kind of one idea of scaffolding is like just noticing and naming for a kid what they're doing well is a sort of scaffolding. And there's ways to increase our scaffolding to provide more and more support. So like a very heavy scaffold would just be the teacher doing some explicit modeling, naming what you want to teach the kid, doing it yourself with your own conversation or with your own comprehension and reading um, even watching peers have a conversation, a sophisticated conversation, that's a pretty heavy scaffold too, because it's providing a model for yeah. other kids that they can replicate. Hey, do you, um, what happens when you don't finish book clubs or do you have to finish the book? The book? <laughs> that's another predictable problem. Like a kid, kids will say, I don't like this book. I'm not reading it. Yeah. That's also authentic. That happens in my own adult book club, right? All of us. I start reading a book. I'm like, ah, no. <laughs> exactly. Um, so like that provides me an opportunity to talk to them about book abandonment and how they want to handle it as a book club. Do they all want to abandon the book or do you want to just sit this one out and join your book club at the next round? 
that's a possibility too. And then there's also times when, you know, we persevere because we have to read a book. We've all been there with work or with school that we just have to read a book. And that's also a choice that we can make. Hey, this is kind of an aside. I just popped in my head and things have popped into my head randomly. And again, we'll get back to the book, but you know, how do you, how do you, introduce this to a staff like do you say you know do you build shared knowledge around you know what is a book club or do you start start mm-hmm. with one in like grade level who might be really interested in in it and and they get good at it and then it kind of spreads throughout the staff you know what does it look like or is it just all of the above yeah I love that question because I love thinking about like what's a process for trying out a new idea and having it grow, right? So that makes me think, I really have kind of two things that I think about. One is um, part of the model that I am accustomed to as a literacy coach is that part of my day is spent co-teaching in one classroom during the language arts block. So it was my first year at the school last year and I really obviously wanted to get book clubs up and running. So um, I paired with a teacher who was kind of game for anything, highly flexible, highly effective. And um, I asked her if we could try some of this out. Mm -hmm. Um, She was she also was an incredible networker. She had a lot of connections around the building. So what ended up happening was we got this up and running in her room. And then a sixth grade teacher heard about it and started asking questions. Right. And then her friend who taught on third grade, who she had taught with two years ago, was like, what are, you, what are you trying out here? Can I try that? So my first year, it grew really organically because I just tried it out in a classroom and got it up and running. I was going to say the you know, exactly what you just said is a lot of times the things that create the most ownership, I don't like the term buy-in because when I, I hear yeah. buy-in, it's like I try to I sell you something. If you don't like it, you want to return it. Ownership is this is this i'm i'm you know i'm a part of building this i'm a part of creating you know my my good friend louise cruz says people are less likely to tear down a fence if they help to build it Mm -hmm. right and so we want people owning this and so you working with that one teacher and then it just spreads like you said organically people are like oh you know i want more tools in my toolkit is it working is it is it really engaging kids i I want some of that that's right and then she because she's so effective and so innovative, she grew it and was much more flexible and innovative than I had even written about or thought about, right? So she was able to grow the idea. The other thing that I was thinking about though is I don't know, I don't necessarily know. I think I'm sure some teachers could do it. I wasn't the kind of teacher that started with book clubs. To me, book clubs is almost like where you're building towards. I actually started with um, whole class conversation. So um, Cassia Wedekin and Christy Thompson wrote about this in their book, Hands Down Speak Out, about they called it a hands down conversation. That's where I start every September is a whole class conversation. That's where I'm really teaching them like the norms of conversation. How do you talk with each other without being called on by a teacher? How do you, in all of those book club skills, how do you initiate? How do you listen to each other? How do you ask questions? That's where I'm really starting usually first quarter of school. I think again, um, from just my reading your book and just talk, listening to you now, um, a lot of this is organic, but on the other hand, you want to make sure that it works. And so yeah. sometimes it's starting small and making sure you start right first and get, you know, the foundational pieces there. Yes. And, and then go from there. 
That's exactly right. And I remember I when I first tried book clubs when I was teaching in New York City public schools, I just launched with book clubs and it was it was a train wreck. And it wasn't a, the kind of train wreck where I was like, oh, I just need to teach them a few things. It was a mess. And I think it's because I didn't put the work in for the foundational stuff. When I went back and did, I'm going to teach this kind of work whole class first and then slowly move it into small groups, I had much better, much more success. But you would not be where you are today. You would not have written such an effective book without that train wreck. Yes, that's true. Because I know teachers, I know teachers are going through it. Do you want to know something funny? When my book came out, a friend of mine wrote to me and said, I hate book clubs. That's all she wrote. Not congratulations on the book or anything. Just I hate book clubs. And I have this feeling that it's, I, I know that feeling. And I think it's because you have this idea of what it's supposed to be. And we got to give ourselves permission to like back up and teach some more foundational stuff if we need to. Sometimes people say they hate something, but the what they hate is not actually what we intend it to be. Yeah. Right? Yes, that's true. You know, you talked about assessment early on and you talked about you know observing and listening um, as, you know, an opportunity to collect data. How do you analyze the assessment data? And, you know, in your book, in chapter four, you see, you say redefining assessment, because I, th I think what happens is, and, you know, I, I've experienced this in, in, experienced it in my work, people hear assessment and they think, oh, another test. I mean, mm -hmm. and they freak out and assessment is just an opportunity to find out information. Yes, exactly. I think, there's qua quantitative data, um, standardized data, right? Map data, that kind of data. And it has its place and it's useful in a lot of ways, right? To me, the most helpful data is the data that helps you figure out how to respond to the child tomorrow or in five minutes. Yeah. So one of, so I was thinking so much about what is that data that's going to help inform what we teach within book clubs. So the tricky part about, you know, kids reading chapter books or 250 page books is that what they're thinking is completely underground. It's in their head, right? So we have to figure out a way to kind of excavate what they're thinking, to let their thinking reveal itself so that we can respond. So for me, one of the most helpful ways is to get kids talking, first of all, because if they're not talking or writing about their thinking, it's very hard to know. And then the other trick for me is to take a transcript. I literally, you know, I have an example of this in the book, but I literally write down, I try to capture everything a kid says. I'm usually faster typing, but I don't sit there with my computer. So I write down everything a book club says. So that's my way of data collection. There's a lot of different ways to analyze that data, a lot of different lenses. I tend to look at it through the lens of what does this reveal that they understand about how to have a conversation? Like what are their conversation skills? Right. And then I look at it again through a totally different lens where I think, what is it revealing about what they're understanding about the book? What does it reveal about their comprehension? And those two buckets have really led me to most of my teaching. How do you... Um... I don't know if I want to use the word scalpel, but how do you front load um, some of the vocabulary for students who, and I just don't want to say just um, students who are learning English as an additional language, because some of our native speakers are still learning the language as well. Yes. They don't have all the, the, the vocabulary. So yep. how do we make sure that they 
um, are able to participate, but also to engage because sometimes they don't have either the, the vocabulary or the language. And um, we want to avoid, again, frustration's okay, um, but mm -hmm. we want to avoid shutting down. Totally. So one thing I tend to do is I rarely just hand a book club a book and say, go to it. I usually start my book club with a pretty heavy book introduction. So I have not read every book I hand kids, but I do a little homework beforehand. I'll read the blurb on the back. I'll do a little online research of like, what is this book about? But also what are the, some of the deeper themes? Yeah. Um, I think about what's some of the language that they're going to encounter in the book that if they don't understand the language, it's really going to get in their way in terms of comprehension. And so I do a little book intro and that book intro usually takes between five to 10 minutes because these chapter books have sophisticated vocabulary. They have sophisticated text structure, language structure. And I want to do a little bit of that teaching before they get into it. Now, once they're into it, the book club I also want to teach kids that if there's something that's confusing them, whether it's a word or a concept or an event in the book, that's what the book club is there for, that you show up to your book club and you go, it said this thing about him being intolerant and I didn't know what that meant. Yes, that's what the book club is for, right? I remember um, a colleague of mine said something about how what you want to figure out is do kids have the conceptual knowledge and then you can just attach vocabulary to that. That's really the most effective vocabulary instruction. If they don't have a concept of that, a fancy vocabulary word's not going to help them. Um, so that's the book club is there to help them build a conceptual understanding. And then I can just attach some language. Can I give you an example that just happened today? I want to hear those examples, please. Okay. So I just was in a sixth grade class working with a book club that's reading um, the graphic novel, The Okay Witch, which is like, I think my favorite graphic novel of all time. And they started saying, you know, Moth, the main character, she's like outgoing and she wants to talk to everybody and she wants friends, but like nobody will let her in. Nobody, nobody wants to be her friends. They keep pushing her out. And I said, do you know some words for people who are trying to make it in, but get pushed out? And they said, no, we don't have words. And I said, sometimes people call those people outsiders. Like they didn't have the phrase outsider, but they were trying to describe the concept. Yeah. yeah. Right. So now they just didn't have the vocabulary. That's right. So now all of a sudden, so then one of the other girls right in the book club, her name's Elsa. She goes, well, are there such things as like insiders? Because those three popular girls, they could be insiders. I said, yes, there are. Light bulbs. Right. So now they're like, okay, so now their goal is a book club. They're going to read and see how else moth is treated as an insider or outsider and who else could be considered insiders and outsiders. So that's a great example of like conceptual understanding was there. I just needed to teach some vocabulary. That is awesome. Um, chapter six, growth <laughs> over time and looking for shifts over time and following rules versus making decisions. You have these two kind of bullets in the chapter. Can you talk to looking for shifts over time first and then following rules versus making decisions? Yes. So I wrote that chapter um, at the tail end of 2021 when kids were starting to go back to school after the pandemic. And what inspired that chapter is that I had been working with a book club virtually um, for the whole year. And I just remember feeling like, 
so ineffective as a teacher. I just felt like, are we getting anywhere? Is this, is this, can I even teach this way? And I went back to my binder where I had saved every transcript I had ever taken. And I couldn't believe the growth (laughs) from, I don't know, January to March to May. And I had this moment where I just thought, we've got to be able to not just look day to day and at these kind of standardized assessments, but it's so important that we're looking over our work over months. Because when we're going after big work, like comprehending complex texts or engaging in academic discourse, it's going to take time. And so I really wanted to, those transcripts are from that book club from that year. I know those kids. And it's because I was feeling kind of disillusioned, but what helped me was looking really at their growth over a semester rather than just day to day. It's important. You know, it's it's kind of like when you look at real life, it's kind of about like if, if I'm starting a, a New Year's resolution, resolution, excuse me, and I work out for 20, 20 days and I don't see any progress. But mm-hmm. over time, six months later, I realize, wow, I'm much more healthier. I've lost 15 pounds. But if you look just for that 20 days or those 10 days and you don't see progress, Sometimes as a teacher, you get frustrated, but I'm glad that you took all those notes and you look back and you're like, whoa, right. make progress. Right. Because the parallel to school is, you know, you have a two week break and they come back and you feel like you're at square one, but they bounce back yeah. or you go from reading fiction to nonfiction and they don't transfer the skills you just taught them and you feel frustrated. So if we're only looking at from one week to the next, yeah. we're not really getting the whole picture that we need. So the second concept um, is this idea of following rules versus making decisions. And that just comes from kind of the larger, I don't know. It's just a thing I've always felt in teaching, which yeah. is there's a lot of like telling teachers to follow rules mm-hmm. and telling teachers to follow curriculum and telling teachers just follow the script or just do this. And I just felt like I didn't want to echo those ideas that this is a cookbook, not so that you can learn these recipes, because I don't know what ingredients you're working with. And I don't know what season it is where you're cooking. And I don't know the elevation where you're baking that thing. Right. But there are tools that you can innovate off of and make decisions based on the kids in front of you. And that's, I wish more people were saying that to us as teachers about like the agency we have to gather as many tools as we can and then look at the kids in front of us and respond. I I think that's what resonated with me so much about this book and also about this conversation. Um, I think you and I are very much alike in in our, our rebel (laughs) (laughs) because I I was not um, an educator who liked to have things dictated. Um, I wasn't going to dictate to our staff or we weren't as the administrative team weren't going to dictate to our staff because to be honest, our teachers knew much more than we did. (laughs) They should be driving this, this, uh, this bus or this car. And so they should be the ones that are innovating and, and showing the way. Exactly. And you made this point earlier, the way we learn is by taking risks and having it flop 
and figuring out what to do next. If we just are handed something and told to follow the rules, we can't respond to kids and we can't learn. Well, you, yeah, it, it, what you just said that Rick DeFore used to say, if you take teachers out of the work, you take them out of the learning. Exactly. Right. And so, and that's why they wrote the book, Learning by Doing. It's like, we have to learn by doing. We don't learn by handing you documents, documents, handing you a script and saying, do this. You don't own that. You're not going to learn the best way having somebody give you something. That's right. That's exactly it. And it, like that phrase, no, the last line of my book, it's kind of a hat tip to one of my um, mentors, Mary Aaronworth. She wrote a book called The Power of Grammar. And she talked about even when you're making decisions in writing about punctuation, which everyone thinks is so like rule driven, she said, no, it's your punctuation is all about the impact you want to have on your reader. And I just love that. And that's how I feel about teaching too, right? It's not a rule to follow. It's a decision to make about how you want to impact your kids. I love that. I love that. The The last thing I want to say, I love at the end of your book, your appendix, because you do give some resources and tools um, for, for, um, for teachers or anybody who reads the book. And, and I think, you know, one is, you know, the touchstone anchor charts and sample lessons, mm -hmm. uh, the planning documents, the the next steps matrix, all those um, are great resources. And as you said, they're not saying things you that you're saying you have to use, but they're resources and tools that mm -hmm. can help people um, integrate this idea of book clubs into their, uh, their kids' lives. That's exactly it. And I feel like I, my teaching tends not to follow a lockstep path, but there are predictable things that kids tend to need. And so that's where those anchor charts came in. I noticed that in my own teaching year after year, I was like, oh, I'm teaching these same three things every single time to get kids up and running in a club. That became a chart in the book. Oh, these three things, th this is usually where I go after like kids know how to talk and sustain a conversation to extend their conversation. That's a chart in the book. So it's kind of, it's based on those predictable observations I'm making. This is awesome. So Sarah, thank you so much. Um, this is Better Book Clubs, everybody. Um, Go Out and Get It by Sarah Kugler. Um, it's a wonderful book. Um, you will use this tool, this resource to, as I say, make the lives of your kids and your schools much, much better and uh, the adults as well. <laughs> Sarah, thank you so much. At the end of every one of my shows, I always say this quote. Um, it's an old African proverb. As I go, I am wearing you. That means mm -hmm. anybody that I have met um, along the way uh, who has influenced me, I am now wearing them. I'm a comp compilation a combination of all the people who have helped me along the way all the learning that i've done along the way it's not brian butler these are all the people who have influenced me and now reading your book i am wearing sarah kugler oh man that's a great quote that's gonna stick with me thanks for doing this it's been really fun it's been great well i appreciate it and again thanks so much and we just appreciate you coming on a conversation with brian we'll talk thanks. to you soon bye 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 sarah